Published just a little over 100 years ago, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is one of the most critically celebrated and important artistic works of the 20th century. A poem in five parts for 434 lines, it is a tour de force of cultural references ranging from the Holy Bible, Homer, Sophocles, Shakespeare, Dante, St. Augustine, Chaucer, Richard Wagner, John Milton, Charles Baudelaire, Aldous Huxley, the Upanishads, Buddha's Fire Sermon, the Fisher King, and the Quest for the Holy Grail. And that's just for starters. Eliot's illusion-saturated masterpiece is the cultural grandfather to any number of works of the last century, from the Sgt. Pepper's album cover to Watership Down's collection of chapter epigraphs to the 80s-drenched denizry of Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. The Wasteland brought to the cultural forefront the idea of a creative work stitched together from a host of previous works to create something new. And consider that Eliot did this way before anyone might have recourse to things like Google, YouTube, and Wikipedia. In the realm of creative and intellectual endeavors, a new force is rising that owes a debt of gratitude to the mosaic-like work of Eliot and other authors of the modernist era. I'm speaking of generative artificial intelligence, which in a way carries on the work of the modernist movement by pulling together something new from a collection of previous works. Generative AI has captured the headlines and imaginations of people across business, technology, and the creative arts, but the ramifications of this new technology are still largely unpacked. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we discuss the impact of generative AI with a focus on the legal, creative, and user experience impact of the technology. Joining me for this episode are Todd Marks, founder and CEO of MindGrub Technologies, a digital experience agency, and Daryl Collette, Associate General Counsel for Jacobs. In his work at MindGrub, Todd and his team use AI technology to enhance the digital solutions their agency provides to clients. While at Jacobs, Daryl studies and evaluates the intellectual property implications posed by generative AI. In the discussion that follows, I asked Todd and Daryl to share their insights on generative AI development and regulation. Todd and Daryl, thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to unpacking the topic of generative AI. Uh, it has been in the news an awful lot. And of course, the release of ChatGPT and uh, other generative AI tools, uh, you know, there's just a lot of disruption. I will leave it to the listeners to determine their views on whether that's a positive or a negative disruption, but there's certainly a lot of disruption, a lot of news, uh, you know, a lot of commentary out there about the impacts of generative AI. And so I'm looking forward to sitting down with you, uh, getting, you know, your insights from where you sit and your uh, respective disciplines on the impacts that generative AI are going to have on us in the professional landscape. Uh, here in the years ahead. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Paul. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Paul. So let me start with you, Todd. Now, Todd, you are the CEO of MindGrub, uh, a digital experience agency. Uh, you do a, a lot of really interesting uh, work uh, in the digital space. And you know, so my, my first question I'm going to direct to you, you know, how is generative AI impacting the digital user experience now, and how do you see that evolving in the near future? 
Well, AI in general is, is impacting what we do in a number of ways. I actually equate it to throwing jimmies on an ice cream cone and that AI is used all over the place from recommendation engines to chatbots to generative content. Where the biggest disruptions are is in the places where organizations will generate a lot of content. So marketing teams, for instance, we're seeing a lot of marketing teams uh, displaced. Uh, we've seen whole companies take 100 plus person marketing teams and largely replace them with AI generated content and then retool them for higher and better use cases of their time. Uh, we also see organizations that have to produce like a number of RFPs or proposals, uh, which is largely a manual, human manual effort with a lot of human capital. Um, that is also getting displaced with AI to at least produce a draft. I think human intervention is needed in anything AI produces, but it can do, it can have a lot of times these days. No, that's really interesting. And I think we're going to unpack that. And Daryl, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you in on this uh, here in a moment or two, because I think that with generating the content, while there's a lot of ease and efficacy, they generate lots of content. Of course, mm -hmm. there's a danger in trademarking and intellectual property. And like you said, Todd, you know, you have to make sure that the human is inserted in the process so that caution, a proper caution is, uh, is in place. But Todd, you know, so you're the head of a digital experience agency and you provide creative and technical solutions for your clients, you know, a, a whole number of clients. How do you, how do you see generative AI impacting firms such as yours? Well, so we use it in a number of places. Our, our developers right now are basically doing pair programming with AI tools. So we use Copilot, which is a Git tool. We also use ChatGPT for, you know, producing some draft methods for a larger program that we might be writing. Um, so that's really a technical spot that we're using it. And then our marketing team now, you know, unless it has to be original content, I happen to write for Forbes and Fast Company and um, they forbid using AI. I might actually have it clean up a sentence or two, but I originate all the content there because of those copyright issues. But in some cases where, you know, we're supporting clients that have large e-commerce websites and it's kind of a matter of getting as much, you know, volume of content out there as possible in a number of different genres or to different user personas to drive traffic back to the e-commerce site. A lot of that now we're basically setting up automation to produce that content and deploy it to the internet to drive those links back where that used to be entirely a human capital effort before. Mm. And then Daryl, so let me, let me, like I said, let me bring you in on this as with other cutting edge technologies and sometimes regulation has an uphill battle to keep pace with development. You know, things right. just develop so fast that unless you're an AI lawyer, like, uh, you know, it's probably hard to keep up with that, you know? So, can you share how some of the current laws and regulations apply to generative AI? You know, as we know, technology just seems to be keep you know moving at a, a more rapid pace at all times. And yet the joke is, you know, the law moves at a glacial pace, right? So we already rely on laws today to govern, you know, internet issues that were passed decades you know, before the existence of the internet. So the, the, the law is always catching up. But what's interesting in the AI space, there actually are a number of existing laws that are relevant and that do apply and that do technically already regulate elements of AI. A good place to start is actually in the privacy space. So the European Union passed, 
its general data protection regulation about five years ago. And what's interesting about that law, it deals specifically with personal data elements, but one of its main concerns was the processing of that data in some type of automated decision-making way, right, without the use of a human element. So we keep coming back again and again to this issue of what a difference a human can make. And what we're seeing is now an evolution, actually, of, of this concept of a fallback option, so that if, if businesses are going to offer AI as an option, they also have to, uh, or at least in some of the early regulations, there's a consideration that they may also have to offer an alternative fallback option, which includes some type of human element or a final human decision maker. But in any event, so within the regulation space as well, today, literally, the EU Parliament passed a new AI regulation draft in draft form. It has to go through some additional EU parliamentary procedures for final passage later this year. But that law was actually first, the committee to, to draft that law was first created back in October of 2020. So that's already been in progress for almost three years. And again, just to show how fast the technology is moving, when that committee first met back in 2020, there was no concept of a of generative AI at all. So even between 2020 and now, there is now inserted into the proposed law draft legislation to address generative AI specifically. So we have the privacy law space, on the U.S. side, that's very different because it's more state-based and it's sector-specific laws. But, you know, the White House has issued a blueprint for AI Bill of Rights with, con again, kind of common principles we're seeing everywhere. There has to be a safety element. There has to be a protection against discrimination. There has to be a protection of privacy. There has to be some type of notice that the AI is being used. And again, there's this concept of a fallback. There has to be a human alternative option as well. The last thing I'll say on the regulatory space, Paul, what's interesting is we're already talking about some intellectual property issues. That's a whole other area of law that gets implicated by the rise of AI, in particular generative AI. And there's two sides to it. One side is the potential concern of IP infringement, the AI that's maybe relying on pre-existing artists' work. And then the other flip side of it that's also fascinating is, is whether or not AI itself can actually generate intellectual property. And as of today, at least within the United States, both in the patent space and in the copyright space, attempts to formally register AI-generated content has been denied. Because within those laws, it has to be an explicit element of human authorship or human inventorship. Where that doesn't exist is in the trade secret space. There's no kind of human element requirement there. So the one area where it appears AI can be used as as a potential intellectual property is within the, within the trade secret space. But so it's just fascinating the two sides to the same. The issue. interesting thing on that is that um, ultimately man doesn't create intellectual property either. It's a culmination of lots of ideas. So anybody that comes up with a unique idea, you know, they didn't, you know, they weren't born in a cave, you know, independent of every other human and they pop out of the cave and say, I have a great idea. They actually learn from a history of other humans mm -hmm. to then basically change the product by a certain percent, right? And then it becomes something that they can, you know, patent or copyright as new intellectual property. AI does the same thing, except when it really glitches, like um, Stable Diffusion was, you know, they're, they use OpenAI and they actually create generative imagery. And in doing so, they were pulling from the internet and they pulled Getty Images images and Getty Images watermark actually showed back up in the images it was generating. So it was really obvious that, it wasn't coming up with something entirely new or changing it enough of a percent because then they could go back and see a lot of that used in Giddy. But computers aren't, you know, any different than man that, 
you know, we have learned through, you know, learning and teaching just like mm -hmm. computers do today. It's just a matter of, is the work enough of a derivation off the original that you can recopyright it? And yeah. I think computers are almost yeah. there. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it, that's exactly right. It's the concept of derivative art, right, Todd? Yeah. That's exactly spot on. And it'll just be interesting to see how that concept is, again, considered with the, within the yeah, yeah, and I'm not like, you know, copyright issues, like very important in this country. I mean, that's why, you know, we're, you know, first and best in marketing a lot of things because we do believe in intellectual property, but most of the rest of the world doesn't. It's actually, I know we're here to talk about generative AI, but the more scary thing is where AI will kill humans in the future. And I think that's why you see like Elon Musk and a, you know, a thousand other technologists asked for a six month moratorium on AI because we really need to figure out how to regulate this stuff so it doesn't, you know, bring down power grids and, you know, turn off hospitals and stuff because people have been trying to do that too. You mentioned the derivative nature of the creative works, right? And I like that's something that like like literary scholars like Harold Bloom and Anxiety of, of Influence, like they've been tackling for decades and, and maybe mm -hmm. you know generations. It's that whole the work that has gone on before has an influence on the work that comes after. And but I think, you know, Daryl, like you said, it's the um the glacial pace of regulations trying to tackle that, you know, so it's like predicating it on like enough of a creative difference mm -hmm. gives a piece its distinction. Right. And, and Todd, I think you mentioned it in one of your Forbes columns, you mentioned that, that example about the Getty images where I think he had, the artist had gone, I think it was like a comic book or something had gone and was trying to, he had used AI to source the images, but then he had modified the images that it had picked and was trying to uh, copyright that that work, trying to make the case that he had been involved. But I think the court ruled against him. But I think it's interesting because I think when you look at the Writers Guild of America and these, you know, these creative artists, they're unionized. I, I almost wonder if there's like a labor law aspect to some like some of the creative artists. I don't know if we'll see that develop um, at some point, but well, look, at, look at Hollywood, not even the writers, the actors mm -hmm. themselves. I mean, you have like we use a product here called Synthesa, which you can take pictures of yourself on a green screen and you can upload your own voice and then it'll create an avatar that if you look at a still, it looks just like you. If you listen to the audio, it sounds really similar to you. You can tell it's AI, though. It's a little chunky. It's not as smooth as you know, the video that we're looking at now. But um, as that technology improves, mm -hmm. you could just insert a script in AI and it'll generate an entire movie for you, right? At a fraction of the cost. So, you know, not just the writers, but the actors themselves, you know, the video, the imagery is going to be produced by AI as well. As well. So it's super interesting times. Yeah, no, and it's, so I remember years ago, I had talked to, um, I had talked to somebody at, uh, at a, a global organization and um, she had been at an AI conference in uh, Beijing, I think it was. And they had, this is when Trump was still president of the United States and the conference organizers in Beijing had, they had used AI to uh, create a video of Trump speaking in like perfect Mandarin or Sichuan to welcome the attendees. And I mean, it, but it was like, and it begat like this whole conversation because it was like, it was so real that it was like, 
you know, I mean, it fooled people. And it's well, that's those deep fakes, right? Like, yeah, you can't, you know, you can't trust anything you see online. The, the, uh, what David Brin would call the end of photography as the, as the proof of anything. So now, Daryl, let me ask you, going back to the regulatory process, it, it seems like there's got to be a place for the technicians to help us unpack the, the ramifications of what, you know, what is being developed because the, the technology is so cutting edge. You know, in your experience, Daryl, how have developers engaged in the regulatory process to date and do they need to become even more involved? And if so, how and why? Yeah, they have been uh, engaged. I think we've probably all seen um, some pretty high profile recent engagements the OpenAI CEO, Sam Altman, you know, recently spoke before Congress. And then I think it may have been just last week, the CEO of Microsoft, Brad Smith, had also had some press releases and discussions uh, very openly about, you know, calling for government regulation. So it's clear that, well, and obviously OpenAI and, and Microsoft are partners. Microsoft has obviously invested heavily in OpenAI. So we're seeing a very similar message from those two organizations. But it's clear that they recognize regulation is coming. So it appears as though the game plan is they, they should participate in those discussions and probably help you know drive them certain directions. But I absolutely think they should be engaged. And it is interesting that they also appear to be very frankly and openly discussing about their own concerns, right? About the power of these of these new technologies and their concern of how they can be abused. So both Mr. Altman and Mr. Smith were calling for, uh, at least within the United States, some type of licensing regime for companies and some type of government regulatory authority that would oversee the licensing. And again, depending upon the spectrum of how sophisticated the AI tools may be, just more progressive safety standards and testing standards for government regulatory oversight. So I, I think that's only going to continue, Paul. I know that Mr. Altman had also, I think, traveled and spoke with various EU leaders as well about, again, similar you know, regulatory concerns and I think in imitation of regulation in general. I think with the, a bit more sensitivity that as with the GDPR law in the privacy space, it does appear as though the European regulators are much more comfortable being much more aggressive, I think, than the U.S. regulators are. So I think there was a bit of a, mm -hmm. um, just some interesting comments made during his, his European remarks that perhaps also somewhat of a warning for EU to not get too aggressive or too prohibitive in innovation and technology developments. So more to come mm -hmm. on all that. And it's interesting. And I remember I had done some, I had done some uh, work on uh, messaging around the GDPR you know, when it was right. coming out about five years ago. And one of the things that had been kind of shared with me is that the European concept or culture around privacy is quite different than mm -hmm. the U.S. concept or culture around privacy. Mm -hmm. For instance, getting notifications from, say, an Amazon that it's your birthday and that they've noticed you bought these other things and maybe you would enjoy buying these suggested items you know, in the U.S., we would see that as a convenience. Uh, mm -hmm. In the EU, they would see that as uh, kind of a creepy intrusion. You know, so it's like there's a culture. I think there's a bit of a culture clash there. But so, Todd, let me ask you, with all the conversation and buzz around generative AI right now, you know, what is something that seems to be missing from the conversation? 
you know, what's a perspective you feel is not getting enough attention right now? I mean, I think the thing that's not getting enough attention is, is really for organizations to understand how to use it, right? Like a lot of people see ChatGPT. It was the first thing that really got from an early majority or the, I should say the innovators into the early majority. And so people started using it and they think it's amazing. I can write letters and emails and all this, right? So individually, there's a number of tools that we can use. But I think right now what's missing is businesses to figure out what's the change management around AI right now. Everyone realizes it's super powerful and there's individual individualized use cases for it, like my developers using it to help them write code. But at scale, I think businesses aren't realizing how they can leverage AI. For instance, like healthcare systems can drastically improve patient outcomes because they have this treasure trove of data right now. And if they were to add simple tools to search against that data and put in the power, put in the hands of physicians um, as they're prescribing, you know, medicines or treatments, right? They can drastically change patient outcomes. But right now, you know, they're probably using it to write their email or help their newsletters. They're not quite figuring out how to leverage it um, at scale in a lot of cases. Um, and that goes for a lot of industries. So, you know, it really is a matter of really defining those use cases and making it more than just kind of novelty in a lot of cases to, you know, harnessing the, the power that it can provide. Hmm. Well, Daryl, let me, let me, let me kind of pick that up with you and, and we'll use, we'll use Jacobs as an example here. And you can, you can speak to like what Jacobs is doing from an enterprise, but, uh, you know, Jacobs is a company is involved in a lot of different industries. It has just tons of domain expertise across the globe. It generates a lot of data and a lot of information uh, and also has digital solutions, tools, and, and things like that. You know, so there's, there's a lot of ingredients in this kind of generative AI discussion that Jacobs can leverage. And so I guess, you know, what I'd be curious to, to learn is, you know, as a potential example to other enterprises, you know, what steps and guidance has Jacobs taken to adopt generative AI in its business to its culture and its values? Yeah, I mean, exactly to Todd's comment, it was, you know, the the sudden rise of generative AI interest within our business, you know, caused us to just step back and think, how can we combine this new technology with our decades of experience of solving, you know, very complex problems? And we thought, well, you know, this is still very exploratory in so many ways. We still don't know, you know, certain legal ramifications. So what we did was we came up with a set of guidelines that we've issued broadly across the business. And those guidelines try to come at the various AI issues from all sides. So first and foremost, you know, we, we maintain a, obviously a lot of very proprietary type information that we've developed internally. We also maintain a lot of proprietary information on behalf of, of our clients. So the number one thing was, you know, we just need to make sure we need to protect the confidentiality of any type of proprietary or, or business sensitive information. So what that means is we've recommended to our employees that, you know, at this point, we should not be uploading or uh, in any way sharing that type of information on, you know, any type of AI platform that is outside of our control. That then dovetails into our current efforts to, you know, enter into partnering agreements with potential AI developers so that we can bring some of this incredible technology in-house 
and use it in a way where we can take advantage of the technological offerings that AI has to provide and the incredible data analytics insight, but do it in a safe and secure environment that is you know, dedicated within, within our Jacobs environment. So, so number one was, again, protecting the information that we hold as a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, you know, respecting intellectual property rights. Like we talked about earlier, we wanted to be sensitive and make sure that in no way are we infringing upon you know, the artistic work of other individuals. So for right now, the guideline is, you know, that we should not be using any type of generative AI derived from public content to the extent we can determine it is from public content in any type of our client or external work product. So, but again, we're exploring ways that we can do this Mm -hmm. uh, once we have a better understanding of the data sets that are being used. And once we have greater control over, I think, the technology itself by bringing it, you know, within our environment. You know, and another thing we've told people is there's this there's this concept of hallucinations, right? That we recommend that all of our employees verify any type of data output independently. And what's interesting is, you know, especially in the generative AI space, it's fascinating that it can do that so well, right? It can actually create new content or provide thought prompts for creative brainstorming sessions. It can do that so well. Mm-hmm. But what it doesn't do so well is actual like factual recitations of things, you know, of actual historical events. And the irony that, well, from my perspective, the irony is I think we tend to look at technology as being the reason we go to technology is to verify the factual accuracy of things, right? But in the generative AI space, it's really more of a creative value that I see right now more than any type of true independent, you know, factual uh, resource. So in any event, but we, we so we've cautioned our employees to just make sure you verify any kind of output independently if you're using mm-hmm. it for that purpose. And then and then we get into other concepts too of just making sure we maintain an, a secure environment. So we give guidance to our employees about if they are going to use these tools. Here here's some recommendations for how you can do that, but still maintain you know security within our environment and you know user access rights and the credentials and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. and and, and it, we we recognize it's not perfect. We recognize it's going to be evolving questions, so we do have a you know a generative AI group within the company that is always fielding new questions that come in. We keep FAQs updated, you know, mm-hmm. on our internal internet site, Paul. But yeah, that's that's how we've approached it to date so far. Mm, interesting, you know, and it's I, I I think it's going to be I think it's going to be interesting to see how we culturally walk this path with generative AI in terms of like the creative arts or that creativity, right? And even even like an engineering or a, a company that was predominantly an engineering firm has moved into the digital space, does a lot of different stuff. But, you know, a highly technical enterprise like Jacobs, there's a lot of creative thinking that goes in, a lot of creative content that's generated but it's going to be interesting to see how a tool like this impacts whether or not like people, I, I'm just curious, this is just me idly wondering if, if people will get kind of creatively lazy where it's like we have this like superpower, super brain that's like super creative and is able to like access all this content to pull together. So it's like, why, why do I need to be creative? You know, and in fact, creativity could be kind of dangerous because it's um, there's so much content out there and it's so searchable now, you know, how could I possibly create something that's original and doesn't fall afoul of an intellectual property or trademark law, you know? So just leave it to the AI to go and do that. Like I'm, I'm almost wondering if at some point it's going to squeeze a lot of human creativity out because of efficiency 
and um, maybe, you know, potential trademark vulnerability or what. I mean, I, the jury's completely out on that. That's just me idly speculating. But I think it'll be interesting to see the dynamics at play and how creators evolve in that kind of space. We're doing it already in that space. But, you know, even if you come up with a new logo and you think it comes from scratch, like let's say you don't use any mm -hmm. digital tools and you do it on pen and paper, you still have to mm -hmm. go to an attorney and go, you know, to the patent trademark office and see if anything in that use case, whether it's an industry or geography, has been, you know, trademarked or copyrighted before. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just assume because AI produces it that suddenly it is original. It's actually, you know, the opposite. You're more likely to do something originally if you know, you know, you can recollect you've seen it before. There's a better chance that AI may infringe on, you know, copyright issues. So, you know, as I said before, like AI should be used to shorten a process, but that, that process still needs to have human gates. So mm -hmm. right now, AI can produce thousands of logos in seconds. It's brilliant mm -hmm. for logo creation, right? And if you can then with a the human eye say, I really like these five, you still need to go and have your attorneys check and see if, you know, anything's been patented in that arena before. Um, so it doesn't negate the step of checking to make sure things are right. It just saves you a lot of time. Hmm. Well, now, so Todd, let me ask you, and this is my, my last question for, for us today. And, and this is, you know, in your, in your role as the, the head of a, a digital agency, you know, and, and the work that y'all do is, is, is focused on like the end user experience, right? So it's, you know, yeah. what is my takeaway when I interact with this technology? And obviously there's drivers that you're, you know, you're wanting to promote a positive experience and that sort of thing. So, you know, in that, in that vein, you know, what advice would you have for developers who are creating these generative AI tools to ensure that what they are creating is a true value add for end users? Well, I mean, developers themselves, right? The, similar to, you know, somebody who does logo design, they can save themselves a ton of time having AI generate content for them. But the same way that logo developer needs to go check, you know, with an attorney and make sure that it hasn't been trademarked copyright before. Mm -hmm. That developer needs to review the code. Um, they need to review their own code. We do code reviews here, particularly if we might be using, in some cases, you know, nearshore or offshore developers. Um, it goes through a rigorous QA process to make sure that there's high code quality and nothing nefarious baked into that code. Um, we do a lot of audits for third-party companies that also use nearshore and offshore. And, we want to make sure that we're validating and providing quality assurance. So if we're using AI to do that code, we can't be lazy and say, oh, look, it compiles and it runs and it does what I want it to do. You still have to check every line and you have to make sure that it's high code quality. And, you know, it doesn't negate having to do that just because AI generates it. You still need that that kind of human gating to make sure that it is of high quality. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, and I wonder if at some point there's like other AIs that take the place of the human gating. So it's like you're applying one level of AI and, I, you know, I don't know. Of course there is. I mean, with the, <laughs> like with the universities now, they, uh, they had to put out a lot of language around like only if your teacher allows you to use AI, then you have to mm -hmm. cite the AI, just mm -hmm. like you're citing any other reference. But now universities actually have tools that'll catch if something was written by AI and now there's tools to rewrite your AI. So the tools that catch it was written by AI can't catch that you used AI. So it's, it's like a battle zone right now. Uh, uh, it's fun, fun place to play in. 
Well, so to bring this all home, and Daryl, you will you will appreciate this as as an attorney. In talking with David Brand, he was saying that for him, it's like that whole question. And we come back to the Sam Altman's and Elon Musk's, Steve Wozniak, all the all the luminaries who are saying, "Hey, we need to like slow down on AI development." You know, David Brin is an author and, and a commentator, and his take on it is like that we don't need to slow down development. He's like, we already have a model in place for like how we would deal with AI. He's like, when you have an entity like a, a, a hyper smart entity that can be threatening to you, you know, how do you defend yourself against that? Will you hire another hyper smart entity <laughs> to defend you and they're called lawyers and like, <laughs> we already have this model in place so it's like so the the key for him was like to solve for like potentially dangerous ai was like to set other ai at variance you know and at least in com competition and to you know to check like as checks and balances and it sounds like todd that's what yeah. we're seeing at the university yeah. level and i imagine probably throughout Commerce will probably. And you're talking about creating not just developers using AI to create more code. You're talking mm -hmm. about actually creating AI. I mean, it's the same thing. You think about like cars, right? Like you can go in your own backyard and make any sort of car you want. You just mm -hmm. can't drive it on the road. There's mm -hmm. laws to driving on the road. We didn't have seatbelts before, and then there were regulations that said now you have to have a seatbelt unless your car is, you know, pre I don't know 1950s or something and it's grandfathered in without having seatbelts. But I don't think we should stop the production of AI tools and the development of AI, but mm -hmm. before you can go drive it on the road, we need a regulatory body to make sure it's safe. Mm -hmm. Well, Todd and Daryl, I want to thank you both so much for an, an engaging conversation on generative AI. And we're going to, I'm sure it's going to continue to dominate the popular imagination and the news cycle for, for some time to come. I think it's going to be just a, a very exciting journey to say the least to see how this technology rolls out so thank you both so much for joining me today to uh, share your insights yeah thanks for having me yeah thanks for having us paul it's a great discussion